Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we have a, the pleasure of having Dr. Harvey Risk on our show today. He is a professor emeritus uh, at Yale University and a professor of epidemiology. So we're going to be talking about medical freedom. It's something that he has lived, and it's more than just... Uh, during COVID, it was before that, and he um, knows all the history and all that. So he's going to be updating us. Um, Harvey, welcome to our show. With you. Yes. So give us a little bit. Of, I gave you a quick introduction um, to our listeners and viewers. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your history. Okay. So um, after college, I went to medical school um, and I... Uh, after medical school, instead of doing clinical work, I went and got a PhD in mathematical models of infectious epidemics, and I wrote a paper on that. And then I did a postdoc in epidemiology where I became more formally an epidemiologist and spent most of my career in doing cancer-related research in epidemiology, in the causes of cancer, but also with a very strong foundation in the underlying principles uh, and research methods in epidemiology, which I've taught to uh, graduate students, doctoral students, PhD students in uh, public health for the last close to 40 years. And uh, when COVID hit, uh, I am a member of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, and the Academy formed a committee to figure out how to help with reopening the state. Now, the governor had his own committee, but we were a second committee that uh, included people who were kind of out of the box. So there was me and my dean as epidemiologist. There was a cardiologist, uh, uh, a couple of physicists, an, an airplane jet engine designer who knows about things like airflows, a clinical psychologist. It was a very disparate but um, collegial group. Uh, and uh, my task in this committee was to look at early outpatient treatment. And so I focused then on hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. Remdesivir wasn't outpatient, but it was thought that it might become so. And so I looked at those. I wrote a very comprehensive paper on both the efficacy and safety of these medications and why people would have different opinions depending upon what field of science they were from. Uh, and I published that in May of 2020 in the American Journal of Epidemiology, got a huge audience. Uh, I took the salient points of that and wrote an op-ed in Newsweek saying that basically hydroxychloroquine was a completely safe medication that had been used for more than 60 years in tens of billions of doses in hundreds of millions of people worldwide completely safely. And given that we had no treatments at that time, no vaccines at that time, this is May of 2020, there was no reason not to use something that was safe regardless of its proven efficacy or not because there's no opportunity cost. You're not displacing something else. At that time, people were just being sent home with, with no treatment. So there were, And this medication also costs 40 cents a day to use. So there was no reason not to do this. And it got a lot of attention, some degree of pushback, irrational pushback, and so on. But that basically got me into wondering, why was all this irrational pushback occurring at the same time. The irrational pushback was that I was talking about using this medication in outpatients, people in the first couple of days of getting sick with COVID. That's the opportunity for treating viral infections, as we all know. It's the, the viral phase when people are achy, headachy, feverish, uh, 
muscle aches, you know, and, and maybe some cough. Uh, you know what what people and tiredness what what people normally feel at the outset of of a respiratory viral illness, but then the pushback was, oh, but it doesn't work in hospital patients, and I wasn't saying anything about hospital patients. And hospital disease is a totally different disease. It's uh, when all this immune system debris fills up the lungs, and you get a severe pneumonia, and you can't breathe, and that's why people are hospitalized. And so they were asserting from the hospital studies that hydroxychloroquine didn't work in outpatients. This is irrational. And at first I thought it was just sloppy reporting, but when it became systematic, I realized that there was some systematic reason for suppressing this medication in usage in outpatients for some ulterior purpose that was being conveyed by all of these voices, whether it was in the media, other academics, and so on. And meanwhile, you know, Hundreds and hundreds of people had started emailing me, including hundreds of doctors who were using these medications very successfully in their practices. You know, we know of Dr. Zelenko in New York, and there were and Dr. Fareed and Tyson in Southern California, and people all over the country have been using these medications in the first few months of the pandemic very successfully, uh, keeping people from dying, keeping them from being hospitalized, and so we knew empirically that this stuff worked, and and. We knew from from the science that, that that hydroxychloroquine worked in this fashion, and yet there were all these academics who had never treated COVID patients, COVID outpatients, all pontificating that the stuff couldn't work, and that you needed large scale randomized trials in order to prove that it worked. When in fact, the whole point of that point of the pandemic is you don't need evidence at all for benefit; you just need evidence, good evidence of lack of harm. So that's how I got into the whole thing. Yeah, I mean that makes sense when you don't have a treatment at all. Um, you know, you can't, you don't have the time to go to a, you know, a placebo-controlled uh, controlled trial. And like you say, if you know there's not, you know, harmful side effects, then why not try it? Speaking of that, what about your paper on remdesivir? What did your paper say about remdesivir? Well, at that point, remdesivir was only in hospitalized patients, so there was no point. Really, I summarized what was known then that there were some harms known. And the efficacy was only weakly established. It wasn't established based on reduction in mortality. The one study that Dr. Fauci touted sitting on the couch in the Oval Office with Dr. Burks next to him was that we stopped this study early. We violated all the rules of conducting a randomized trial by stopping the study early and looking at the results early instead of letting it run to its completion. And it shaved one day of time off of the people who left the hospital. But it didn't say anything about which people left the hospital, if ever, you know, and didn't say that fewer people died who were on remdesivir. That wasn't the outcome because they switched the outcome in the middle of the trial, which also violates how you carry out randomized trials. They've been known to do that before, though. Um, they did it later with the COVID vaccine. They also did it with AZT during HIV, I believe, too. Is that correct? Yes. This has been part of how big pharma manipulates the evidence climate in order to market, to get their drugs approved for marketing. Yeah. Well, Janet, one, of, one of the things that I don't know if very many people realize this, especially in the United States, that hydroxychloroquine was actually over the counter in many countries for the use of malaria. So um, I, I don't think that our country went that far partly because we didn't need to. But can you speak to why you think it was removed? Because, you know, it looked like in Europe and different places, they just took it off the shelf. Um, it's the same suppression. And think about it. If you can control a pandemic by treating people for 40 cents a day, whose interests 
are are being obliterated, whose economic interests are being obliterated by that. Okay, somebody who's going to rush in with a vaccine costing thirty or fifty dollars, a person that has to be given multiple times, somebody with a drug that costs three thousand dollars for a course of treatment. You know, those those things are are all economically disadvantaged unless you tilt the playing field, the economic playing field. Well, and, and isn't it true that it's not just big pharma that we talk about? Aren't there individuals in the government, let's say the NIH, that um, have certain get certain royalties off certain treatments? Is that correct? Yes, but as far as I know, the royalties are not huge. Uh, the federal uh, government allows scientists to collect up to $150,000 per year, I think per patent, uh, on royalties of products sold. And uh, NIH also had a, a patent cost uh, sales sharing agreement with Moderna to get a uh, billion dollars or something <clears throat> out of all the money they gave to Moderna in the first place to develop the vaccine. So there, there is a financial interest by NIH more globally than just the patents that the individual scientists may hold. Yeah, and you know, you say one hundred fifty thousand dollars isn't isn't um, a huge patent, and it's not cons- or a huge chunk of money compared to billions of dollars that big pharma makes. But think about NIH. I gotta think that you know, there's multiple scientists inside of NIH per one patent that actually makes royalties. Is is that correct? Yeah, I think there were really only four or six scientists at NIH who are plugged into the research on the vaccines that w- that are getting royalties, as far as I know. Yeah, and those royalties go on forever. They can pass it down to their families, and so if there's six hundred thousand dollars right there, I mean, there's there's you know there's a big conflict. Um, that's six hundred thousand dollars a year, um, but like I say, royalties can go on forever as long as that drug keeps keeps selling. So, as long as it's being sold, that's right. But uh, yeah. you know, I I I I don't consider that to be a, a major issue of conflict of interest. I think the conflicts of interest are on a much higher scale than those amounts of money. So tell us about that. Well, as I said, NIH had the conflict of interest, uh, the the profit sharing with Moderna on on the the Moderna product. And I think that we've seen with Dr. Fauci the just utter corruption of his decisions that he's made. I'm now aware of three times that he's made corrupted decisions against science and for pharma. It's well known what he did in the AIDS era in 1987 that he refused to espouse using Bactrim to treat the pneumocystis pneumonia that people with AIDS were getting. And he said, bring me a randomized trial before I'll say anything about it. Does this sound familiar? In any yeah, event, yeah, right. so between 1987 and 1989, the gay community in New York City self-funded carrying out a randomized trial of Bactrim, and I forgot the other combined antibiotic that they used. Uh, and in that time period, they managed to do the trial and show how well the, the antibiotics worked, but at the loss of 17,000 lives in that community over those three years that Fauci caused by instead shilling for AZT, which, as we know, is a toxic medication that doesn't work very well, if at all, and requires other medications to prevent or reduce its toxicity. It's a very bad medication that should never have been approved. And then I learned recently that in around 2008, uh, Dr. Fauci was asked to support using vitamin D to prevent bad outcomes in respiratory virus infections, and he absolutely refused. He said, again, bring me large-scale clinical trial, randomized clinical trial evidence before I say anything, knowing full well 
that generic uh, products have no large money behind them. You can't spend five to $50 million on a randomized trial when you're making pennies per dose on, on a product that sells. Right. And so nobody he knows full well that nobody will do those trials. And so he did the same thing with vitamin D. We now know that vitamin D levels over about 50 in the blood prevent people from severe outcomes in respiratory viruses, whether it's RSV, influenza, COVID, it, it works the same. It stimulates the immune system to work better. You don't need high levels. Levels can be too high if they're over 100, say. But in the 50 to 60 or 70 range, it's, it's safe and very effective. And there's empirical data, a large amount now of empirical data showing how well vitamin D works. Vitamin D, again, is another five or six cents a day to take it as a supplement, easily available. And, and you know, and everybody should be taking it. Uh, and so Fauci blocked that. And then, of course, he did the same thing in COVID with hydroxychloroquine and, and saying, uh, flipping his, his dismissive hand away and saying the hydroxychloroquine studies were anecdotal, which is a, which is a lie. They're, they're, when you do a study, even if, if it's a relatively small study, even if it's a case series, a case series is not anecdotal, a controlled trial is not anecdotal, and he just flipped it away saying those are anecdotal and nobody ever took him to task. He was part of the, the suppression regime, the corruption uh, of, of suppressing hydroxychloroquine. Wow. Janet, what kind of questions do you have? So um, I'm, I'm imagining that you had some pushback on, on some of the, um, or the, the writing that you put out. And so what did that play out for you on your papers? What, what happened to you for um, what you published? Well, the pushback was essentially ad hominem attacks, saying, number one, that I was unqualified to study an infectious disease. This was absurd because I was talking about a medication used for treatment, which has very little to do with an infectious disease. Secondly, that I studied infectious diseases throughout my whole career as risk factors for cancers of different sites. And so I know perfectly well about dealing with infectious disease and their considerations. Third, I had infectious diseases in medical school, and perhaps a quarter of the curriculum in medical school is about infectious diseases, and I've gone through all of that text material and, and coursework. And fourth, my PhD was in mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics, and I published on that. So for them to say this absurdity without ever doing due diligence on, on my background is, is just bizarre. Uh, there was no substantial scientific commentary on what I'd said. And even though there were only five studies that had come out looking, controlled trials, looking at hydroxychloroquine and COVID, by the time I wrote that paper, subsequently four more have come out, again, showing dramatically how well this medication works when used in the first five or six days, starting then on reducing risk of hospitalization and mortality. And uh, the French group just recently made available their data of 30,000 patients that they treated over the first two years of the pandemic, again, showing exactly the same thing, that hydroxychloroquine use in the first uh, four, five, or six days of the pandemic, starting then, cuts mortality risk by 75%. And this is established beyond any possible doubt. So is this just all about the money? I mean, you follow the money on this? Is that why they were trying to suppress less expensive treatments? Well, this is a complicated question. Yes, that was part of it. But the second part of it was, why was the federal government security apparatus involved in managing the pandemic? 
as you can understand, we originally thought that all of the public health policy was coming out of the public health administration, the CDC, parts of the FDA, you know, and the public health service. But it became apparent after a while that, in fact, they were only the agents of what the government security apparatus, the National Security Council, was telling them to do that violated the tenets of public health. Because here you have Tom Inglesby and um, I've forgotten, uh, um, I'm blocking on his name, but anyway, who eradicated smallpox, uh, publishing in 2006 that respiratory virus pandemics are managed not by locking people up, but by quarantining symptomatic people, not by um, face masks, which are useless, not by closing airports and so on, that what works is getting to maximal herd immunity safely as soon as possible. And this was thrown out the window as a policy within five days of the proclamation of the emergency at the beginning of the pandemic, when it was taken over by the military apparatus, who, of course, was also, as we know, at Event 201 in September of 2019, and along with the CIA. And you can ask what the military and the CIA were doing in, in Event 201 in pandemic planning. You know, and, and this is a whole other question of, about the origin of the virus, where the first cases were, and when the first cases occurred, and how it's been managed ever since. Tell us a bit about, for the, our listeners and viewers that don't know about Event 201, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, Event 201 was a planning event. It was, I think it was the 19th or 20th such annual or almost annual planning events dealing with infectious pandemic emergencies where it carried out a simulation of what would happen if an infectious, a, a, a toxic infectious respiratory virus were to be released into a country and then around the world, and how uh, various uh, organizations and administrative bodies within countries and WHO would manage this. And as I've said, this was taken on as a military uh, maneuver because of its conclusion that this would happen as a bioterrorism event and not an accidental uh, laboratory or, or zoonotic release. And why this would be immediately made as a bioterrorism uh, event and not a natural one is unclear unless there's some reason that the military needs to be involved in order to protect something, not just the health of the public, but protect something else that we don't know about. And there's been increasing evidence that we and our military have been involved in the creation of this virus against the judgment of the president and congressional administrations putting a stop to gain-of-function research that was described to the American public and to the government as necessary to compete with our enemies and to develop vaccines. And in fact, no vaccines were ever developed based on gain-of-function research until COVID and these the, the viruses that were made in gain-of-function research have been made for, you know, a decade, if not, you know, at least published for COVID in, in 2015 and 16, and yet there were no vaccines made from that. And it's actually a ludicrous idea, a plausible but ludicrous idea that making nasty viruses is going to allow you to make vaccines 
to prevent them from happening from your enemy because the enemies won't make the same virus that you make. They'll make something different and your vaccines won't work for that. It's, it's, it's completely silly. Yeah, it really is. So tell us about where, where do we go? Where do we go from here? And what, what should we expect next? Well, so what we've seen is that the suppression of cheap medications for usage and treatment in the early stage of the pandemic led to uh, doctors who had been using hydroxychloroquine and later ivermectin and, and other medications to be blocked from using that or to be taken to task by the medical licensing boards for using approved. These are all approved medications that are used off-label. Off-label usage is legal. It's up to a, a doctor's judgment in con consultation with a patient who's been given informed consent to choose what uh, treatments to take. This is how legal standard medicine has worked for the last hundred years, if not longer. And what one expects in going to a doctor is that everything that's available and allowable and, and can be used. And, and when the government, when the CDC that says we're not practicing medicine comes in and tells you it's unsafe for you to do that. And if, and if you use this medication against our suggestions that you have legal liability because of, of our pronouncements, and when the FDA does the same thing, saying we don't practice medicine, but we're telling you what you can't use in your practice, you know, this is a corruption of the medicine that I learned the, the nature of relationships between doctors and patients, that's intolerable. And this corruption went so far as to medical practices where the doctors are no longer independent practitioners, but their practices have been bought up by hospitals, by large clinical groups and, and so on. Um, the, they are being blocked from using their best judgment to treat patients. The medical care suffers. And this led me and a group of others involved to the startup company, the wellness company, that Foster Coulson as the CEO, investor, and, and um, manager, you know, basically organized this from conversations with Dr. Zelenko to say that we need a medical practice that is not restricted by all of these non-medical, political, economic whatever reasons why these medications and procedures and so on are being blocked from doctors being able to use. And now that we're in a telemedicine era, which happened during COVID because of lockdowns and, and people's fears, that we can do this by having a, a telemedicine organization that provides care independently on the basis of doctor's best judgment, patient-informed consent, backed by scientific knowledge as objectively evaluated the best as possible. Now, we all the company also has created custom supplements because COVID is new, and, and we don't know how to treat some of the side effects of the illness and side effects of the vaccines. And so there are products that, are, that my colleagues have been developing that have evidence in favor of uh, supporting their usage, if not proof that they work, but at least some uh, evidence that the, these uh, low-cost supplements have a potential benefit for, for treating some of these long illness, so to speak, conditions. And we are starting to see a lot of that. It's called long COVID, and whether it's from COVID or whether it's from some of the vaccine side effects, it's kind of from the spike protein. Is that correct? You want to? Can you talk about that? That's a, a major one. The spike protein is a toxic irritant. 
It's an irritant to the immune system. That's why the immune system responds to it. It's an irritant to the inflammation system in the body, which is part of the immune system. Uh, it's an irritant to cells that, that swallow it up and attach it to the surface of the cells. And it's a it's an irritant to brain cells where it gets. And if, in fact, the spike protein from the vaccines goes all through the body. Now, it's possible it does the same from the inf natural infection, but at much, much, much lower levels than what's provided by the genetic vaccines. And so this irritant that goes throughout the body does different things in different organs. One of the but in general, causing inflammatory responses, that the genetic mechanism of, of the vaccines is to get the uh, particles into the cells where they open up and the genetic code uh, makes the spike protein. The spike protein, the cell then takes the spike protein and excretes it out to the cell and some of it attaches to the outside of the cell and some of it goes into the bloodstream and the lymphatic system. And you can understand that when this foreign protein is sitting on the outside of cells, the immune system comes along and says, oh, that's an invading cell, you know, like a bacterium. So it attacks it. And this is this is the why one sees inflammation in different parts of the body. When this happens on the lining of the bloodstream, the, the, the cell, the walls of, of the arteries, then you get inflammation on those cells. And you have to remember that the lining of the arteries serves two functions. It contains the blood and allows the blood to move smoothly throughout the body. And at the same time, it forms a structural support, maintaining the strong integrity of the, the wall of the arteries to keep from ballooning out and breaking because of the pressure of the blood. And when you have inflammation on these cells, it weakens the structure uh, of the blood vessels. And this is why you, you see strokes and clots occurring in people as a toxic effect of the spike protein binding to the inside of the blood vessels. You know, in, in reproductive organs like ovary and testis, you can have reduction in fertility because of interfering with the natural processes uh, of those organs. When it gets into the brain uh, and other organs, kidneys, liver, there's all sorts of different pathologies that can occur. It's not all that common for these things to happen, but it does happen. In the heart, it causes inflammation, which which has led to what we call myocarditis or pericarditis for the sac around the heart. And this inflammation interferes with the ability of the heart muscle to contract, which weakens the, the heart pumping ability, and at the same time can create irritant foci for the heart impulses, the electric impulses that make the heart muscle contract if you've got some other place in the heart that is sending out its own electrical signals or bouncing electrical signals then it can interrupt the natural beating of the heart rhythm and that also can trigger uh, adverse uh, heart activity uh, and as we've seen sudden stoppage of, of the the heartbeat or or pain and, and myocardial infarction, heart attack, and so on. These are all the things that can happen, although fortunately not that frequently, but enough that we worry about it, that, you know, uh, unprecedented compared to all previous vaccines, that especially in, in young adult males and people who push their cardiac endurance to the limit, so people who are professional athletes or people who love to exercise and and push their exercise to their limits are at much greater risk of these things happening. So th this is the whole spectrum 
of adverse events from the vaccines, a little bit from COVID, but mostly from the vaccines that um, needs to be attended to and why we're so interested in finding substances that either enzymatically degrade the spike protein or interfere with its inflammatory ability, things like that, that, that this is all empirical now. Yeah, and I will tell you that over the last, since January, I know of five people that were close to me, two of them in healthcare, three of them I went to high school with. So they're, you know, they're my age, late forties, early fifties that have had strokes. And I can tell you before that two or three years ago, there was none of that. I don't know of one. Um, so there was a large, it seems like there's a large incidence of strokes in younger people that don't normally have strokes um, you know, no risk factors and so on having strokes. So you got to wonder what is, you know, what is going on. Um, so for those listening, the, the wellness company, if you look at our Facebook page, we stream live on, on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you look at our Facebook, the health solutions, uh, Facebook page, you will see some, um, links and some comments to the wellness company in there, um, about specific products and, and some more information that, um, um, Dr. Harvey Risk is talking about. So please go to our Facebook and check those out. Um, as we wind this podcast up. Um, doctor, um, tell us, tell us what individuals need to do so they don't get in a situation like this again. Well, that's a much bigger global thing. The, the first thing individuals have to do is not panic, not be afraid, listen to rational voices. Don't listen to the government. Don't listen to the government's agencies because it's all corrupted. Don't listen to the medical establishment. They have to seek out independent voices who are being rational, not histrionic, not theatrical, but rational about the nature of what evidence there is for what one is facing. We knew in COVID, right at the beginning, within a month, that COVID was only a serious risk for people with chronic health conditions like obesity, diabetes, chronic heart disease, chronic kidney disease, people who had immunocompromised conditions. Those are the people at risk and people, and basically over age 65, 70, or essentially over age 80. Those are the people at risk. Everybody else tolerated getting the infection, by and large, with unpleasant uh, few days that finished and made them immune. And there was no reason that all those people had to be treated poorly and had to be vaccinated for, for no benefit for themselves, essentially. Now we know the CDC has said on August 11th of last year, the vaccines do not work to prevent transmission. Even the booster is weak and transient, doesn't prevent transmission for long. And that's what we weren't told at the beginning when the vaccines came out, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. It was all false. And so the people who needed protection were the elderly people with chronic conditions. Those are the ones who we needed to manage either by separating them, keeping infected people away from them. Uh, early treatment with hydroxychloroquine and other regimens, absolutely, that's how they would have been saved. You know, hundreds of thousands of people died in the United States in the first year because they were forced not to get early treatment that would have saved their lives. This is the, the biggest calamity of what was done to us by our government and its agencies, and by the AMA that contributed to all of this, and the specialty medical specialty organizations that all contributed to this fraud of suppression of these medications. 
And so hundreds of thousands of people died unnecessarily. But now we know that, that these medications work. There's others that work also. There's a lot of information. Vitamin D, of course, is essential for everybody to take. And so there's no reason why people should be concerned at all other than making rational decisions. And so when the government comes in and tells you you have to lock down, there needs to be massive pushback. And the way we push back is by electing a Congress that will interfere with that fraud, that fraudulent management. We need to take those people to trial who, who carried out this pandemic mismanagement and, and fraud against the American people and around the world. But though, but we are doing that. The cases are slow. They are coming. We have attorneys who are working. They're doing a great job. And we're pushing back in the courts. And we have to push back in, uh, you know, at the polls. And and that's how we're going to end this this uh, total corruption of our constitution, our democratic life, and so on, because of fear propaganda from the media, which are complicit in the whole process as well. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And and I think one of the most important parts, and this is what the pandemic exposed, is that in general, um, you know, you have to take care of yourself. So my job is, I feel, is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health care. Um, instead of, you know, relying on the system. Because when you look at a lot of people that went to a hospital, for instance, I mean, hospitals literally were were killing people, um, intubating people, giving them indesivir. Um, and what's happened is those those systems have been exposed. They were exposed, they were evil before COVID, but COVID exposed them. So the good well, news is- Well, the government made uh, incentives to pay extra for, sure. for, for the bad things to happen. And the government thought they weren't bad things, but they were bad things. And so the hospitals fell in line because they needed the money. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which in my opinion is evil. I mean, if they, if they took patient care, if they took money over patient care um, and lives, then, that, then that's evil. And I think if you look at the history of the government paying hospitals, which most hospitals are largely paid by the government system, um, you know, whether it be Medicare, Medicaid, or other, other type of government type programs, you know, they're owned by the, ho- they're owned by the government. So they do what the government tells them to do. Um, and, and that, that has gotten exposed. So I think my, my goal of this podcast is to, you know, educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. And I think, you know, what you're doing with a wellness company, I think that is awesome and um, a good a good start and a good avenue for, for people to educate themselves and find uh, like-minded um, um, doctors that will, will treat patient individually without without something in between them it's just a patient doctor relationship so uh, it's relatively low cost you know and we're not talking about treatment for cataclysmic events in medical care we're talking about everyday kinds of, yeah. of primary care which should be low cost yeah and so tell us um, as we wind this up tell us how people can find out more about the the wellness company and and maybe there's a link to get a hold of you on there if they have any questions on this podcast so the wellness company is twc.health. It's easy to find. Uh, or um, And I'm uh, if you just Google Yale and Rish, R-I-S-C-H, you'll find me. You'll find a link to my Telegram channel. You'll get to wellness company and vice versa. So both are easy to find. 
I love it. Dr. Harvey Risch, you've helped us realize our goal to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. So thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. Great to be with you. And thank you, listeners and viewers, for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in for our regularly scheduled podcast Thursday a.m., uh, Thursday a.m., 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time. So see you then. Thanks for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. 